This podcast is brought to you by FanChain, introducing the first cryptocurrency for the global sports market. Learn more at fanchain.com. Welcome to Almost Here, Round the Corner of Future Technology podcast with Richard Jacobs. Future technologies poised to transform our lives for better or worse are the focus of this podcast. Almost Here means these technologies are now here and starting to be used. We're just around the corner, from Bitcoin to artificial intelligence, 3D printing, blockchain, virtual reality, and more. This podcast is brought to you by FanChain, introducing the first cryptocurrency for the global sports market. Learn more at FanChain.com. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Future Tech Podcast. Uh, my guests are Professor Stephen Chase and Professor Byron Yu. Uh, they're both at Carnegie Mellon University, and we're going to be talking about their research uh, into biomedical engineering and brain-computer interfaces. So, uh, Professor Chase and Yu, how are you doing? Good. Good, thanks. How are you? Good. Yeah, thank you for coming. Um, let me know if it's, uh, you know, the work that you're both working on. Yes. Yeah, great. Uh, so, uh, one of the things that uh, we've uh, been working on is brain-computer interfaces, where the idea mm -hmm. is uh, that you connect uh, the brain to a computer cursor or a robotic limb, and you can allow a person to uh, control uh, the computer cursor or the robotic limb just by thinking about it. Uh, so, for example, oh. uh, a person can think right, and then the computer cursor will go right. Or if the person thinks left, the computer cursor will go left. And uh, oh. most people in the field, uh, including us, uh, are interested in helping uh, paralyzed people uh, regain movement using a brain-computer interface. Right. Uh, and uh, we have a sort of a novel uh, uh, sort of uh, approach or use of a brain-computer interface, which is to use a brain-computer interface to uh, address basic scientific questions about how the brain works. And so basically using a brain-computer interface as a tool uh, to study the brain. Yeah, probably a famous example of this, and I don't know how close it is to what you're doing, but I guess Professor Stephen Hawking that recently passed, what, what was he doing? How was he communicating to the computer? Was it a brain-computer interface, or was it a different format than what you're working on? Yeah, that's a, that was a little bit different. I believe his device worked. He had a straw that he would blow into, and, and that uh, gave him control over the wheelchair uh, and and I think over his uh, his spelling uh, device, um, the stuff that we work on, what we do is we record uh, activity directly from the brain, and so we'll have uh, 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 electrodes directly implanted in uh, primary motor cortex, which, as the name implies, is the part of the brain that's responsible for movement, and uh, we'll look at the activity of those neurons, and then we'll translate the uh, intended movements that the subject uh, um, uh, wants to make. And so the idea here is that you can take a, a, a patient who's paralyzed for whatever reason. It could be uh, ALS like Stephen Hawking had, or it could be stroke or spinal cord injury. And you can translate their intended movements directly from the, uh, the activity of the neurons in the brain and then apply that to, to any kind of device, a wheelchair, a spelling device, a cursor on a computer screen. Uh, and then you can bypass you know, the damaged tissue and, and allow them to interact with the world that way. Well, the process sounds uh, very invasive. 
obviously for the patient. And I know you wouldn't do this unless it was a super serious circumstance where they were, you know, paralyzed to the point where they're locked in or they're unable to use arms or legs or do much. But um, any hope of doing this with a, um, a scalp cap or a non-invasive, non-invasive way or we're not there yet? Yeah, I would say there are a lot of people working on that on that problem because uh, obviously that's what you would want to do. There's no surgery involved, and if you know an electrode breaks, you just replace it. Um, and uh, right now, I would say the information content just isn't there yet. You can get basic control signals out of a EEG skull cap, but you can't get complex control over a high degree of freedom robotic arm, or you can't get grasp interactions, that sort of thing. So when you're doing the surgery and um, linking directly into neurons, um, is the cut covered up and is the person able to, uh, you know, to be outside of the hospital environment and lab or do they have to, uh, is it left open and does it have to be attended to all the time? No, no, no. So, uh, you know, in the, in the clinical trials uh, where this is done, uh, patients are, are sewn back up. So the electrodes are implanted uh, and then uh, everything's sewn back up and you have a, a plug that's sort of attached directly to the skull uh, that you can connect and disconnect. Um, and so it, it works in that sense a lot like a, a cochlear implant. Um, uh, so the patient can go about, there's no, they can, they can leave the house, they can walk or, or not walk around, but they can, they can leave the house and, and, and are, are still mobile in the wheelchair. So how many, um, how many neurons do you have to connect to to get some fine degree of control? Hundreds, thousands, uh, what, what level are you at? Yeah, so a typical number uh, with the current technology is many tens of neurons, maybe 100 or 200 even. And uh, in uh, recent sort of development uh, in uh, neural recording technology um, is uh, probably going to allow us to record from even more neurons uh, in the coming years. Um, so uh, in terms of the level of control that uh, one can have, of a computer cursor or robotic limb. Um, right now, with around 100 neurons, uh, you can control a computer cursor very well. So, uh, you know, recent work has shown that um, that brain control of a computer cursor is half as good, or even maybe even slightly better than that, uh, compared to an, uh, your arm controlling, moving a mouse around to control a computer cursor. Um, in terms of robotic limb control, um, you know, people have shown uh, compelling demonstrations of a robotic limb moving in a three-dimensional space and even uh, some grasping movements. Um, but uh, the challenge remains to be able to use brain the neural activity to control, um, say, you know, different fingers opening and closing and uh, sort of the multiple, multiple degrees of freedom that, that our arms and hands have. Um, that's still a topic of ongoing research of how to control those well. Yeah, yeah it's, it's, is it just going to require a lot more neurons, or what's what holds that back? More finer control or or that ability? Yeah, uh, I think there are sort of two parts of this. So one is probably more neurons. Uh, the other is better understanding how uh, intended movements are being expressed by the activity of the neurons that we record. Right. So in other words. Um, we need better ways to read out or translate the brain's um, information or code right, in, in the activity that it produces. So, so how, need, how fast is the, um, 
Go how ahead. fast is the current response? You know, you think something, how fast does the uh, cursor react, for instance, or the robot arm move compared oh, to we can uh, actually, normally doing it? We can actually beat uh, standard human-level reaction times. Uh, so the typical latency between when a neuron in primary motor cortex fires and when the arm moves is about 100 milliseconds, so a tenth of a second or so. Um, and we can get that information to a cursor in tens of milliseconds. So we can actually beat standard reaction times uh, with this, um, which is kind of an interesting fact. It's, it sort of makes you wonder why is the delay between neural activity and motor cortex and, and actual arm movement so long uh, when in fact the, the signals are there much earlier. And this is something that researchers are, are still struggling to understand. Well, you say beat it, but you beat it by 10 times, it sounds like. That's a lot. That's more than just beat it by 20%. You know? Yeah, yeah. I'd say we can beat it by about 50%. Yeah. Maybe part of the reason is that um, if... Uh, well, okay. Let me back up. When uh, when you watch people interact with the system, how long does it take them to get trained on it and... Is it hard for them to do because the reaction is so fast? Maybe they tend to overcorrect and you know fly all over the place oh, yeah. because their thoughts are so fast. Yeah, that's that's a great question. Most of the time, uh, we don't decode it as fast as we could. Most of the time, uh, we try and match the sort of natural latencies, so there isn't any obvious uh, discrepancies between how the cursor is moving and, and how you expect it to move. And that turns out actually to be really important. Some of the early uh, instantiations of these devices, uh, the lags were a little bit too long. And if you've ever used a, a computer mouse that had a little bit of a delay between when you moved your arm and when the cursor moved, that actually causes your control to, to crash really quickly. Uh, and so it's important to match those natural latencies. Um, the other part of your question is how long does it take to, to learn these, de uh, to how to use these devices? Uh, and I would say that you can get okay control right out of the box, sort of right after implantation uh, and the first time you start to use it. Within a couple of minutes, you can get okay control. And then over the course of a month, there's a learning process that happens where you get proficient control. And that's really uh, the sort of thing that uh, Dr. Yu and I are, are interested in studying. How does the brain reorganize in order to go from okay control to really good control? And what are the limitations on that process? How can we speed that process up? And, and what is it in the brain that's changing when you're actually doing that learning process? Do you have any subjects? I mean, is, I would guess this is a permanent condition, right? Or do you have any subjects that were like this for a period of time, but they regained functionality in, in a limb so they could revert back to that form of uh, control? Or do you have patients where... Only certain limbs are like this, and other limbs are under the quote-unquote normal wiring and normal control to compare. Yeah, all of the clinical trials that are ongoing in the U.S. right now uh, are on permanent conditions. So, and, uh, and I believe all of them are on uh, fully quadriplegic patients, or at least uh, people who have lost uh, bilateral control uh, on both sides. It might not be complete, but it's bilateral control. Uh, I don't believe there's yet any clinical trials going on uh, with a person who has one attack. Yeah, because that may be very instructive. You know, something happens and I, and I I lose my left arm, let's say, but my right arm still works and I control it normally. I wonder what would happen if I had an implant that I used just my left arm. 
you know, because then my brain would work both ways. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, and people are really interested in understanding. Mm-hmm. Uh, for example, with uh, stroke, a lot of times what happens is uh, you'll lose control out of one arm. So people are interested in, in trying to understand, can you tap out a control signal from the intact side of your brain to control that 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 contralateral arm, the arm on the other side of the body that you... People are interested in seeing if you can tap out control signals for the arm that you lost control of from the same side of the brain that's still controlling the intact arm. And so to see if you can actually multiplex two-arm control out of the single side of the brain or not. Mm, yeah. Well, also in a person that's quadriplegic, I mean, they can... Can these people still move their head and they can still speak? And can they do all that and move their face muscles yeah. and everything? Yeah, so most of, uh, most of these are a sort of high-level spinal cord injury patients. So you still got face control, you still have voice control, all of that's still intact, um, but you've lost uh, muscular control for uh, the limbs and, and, and trunk mm. medication. So, in effect, they still are moving certain parts of themselves the traditional way. You know, I want my cheek to grimace or I want to stick my tongue out, I do it, but my arm now because I'm quadriplegic, I have to use this system and think, you know, to use the robot arm or the, you know, the control cursor. Have there been interviews with these people to ask them what the experience is like? And have you picked up any insights from that? Yeah. So those interviews are are really interesting. Um, So one of the, uh, the early patients that, uh, that, that was um, in the clinical trial that was being run out of the university of Pittsburgh, um, she was interviewed about her experiencing is using the device. What do you think about when you want to make the robotic arm move to the left? And she says, I just think move left. Uh, and so it's really cool that the robotic arm is embodied in that way, that you just think move left and the arm moves left. Uh, but it's hard to get sort of real insight from that. You know, all right, well, what, is, what does that mean about how motor control is is uh, is happening. We actually have very little ability to introspect on what's going on in our own movements. I can think, flex my bicep and my bicep will flex. But in terms of all of the computations that actually have to occur for me to grab a cup of coffee, we don't think about those consciously. We don't think, well, the coffee cup is on my retina and my arm is located to the side of my body. And that means that the movement vector has to be up into the left. We don't think about any of those computations. And so your ability to sort of consciously monitor the, your motor control is, is in some sense a little bit limited. Mm. Is it, um, you know, instead of a robot arm, do we have the technology yet to do a brain-computer interface and then implant electrodes in your arm, let's say that's disabled, so you can control your own arm with your thoughts instead of with the traditional uh, nerve pathways? Yeah, absolutely. So there are groups working on this, right, where you can uh, stimulate uh, existing muscles, right? So if someone has a paralyzed limb, they can uh, use the neural activity recorded from the brain and then use a computer to translate that neural activity into um, desired movements or desired muscle contractions and then stimulate the muscle of the intact limb to get the arm to move. Okay. So you've chosen instead to go the robot arm way and the cursor way, et cetera, right? Yeah, I would say that, uh, you know, reanimating a person's intact limb 
uh, is absolutely the way to go. And if your goal is just to sort of restore a person uh, back to where they were, then that's the way to go. Right now, uh, those approaches suffer from some sort of fundamental difficulties that research are working to overcome, but are hard to overcome. So, for example, when you stimulate a muscle, uh, you tend to stimulate the fast twitch fibers and not the slow twist twitch fibers, which means that the muscle fatigues really quickly. Uh, and so uh, the muscle response to a stimulation on minute one and the same stimulation on minute three are actually different because the muscle is, is physically getting weaker. And those are really hard sure. things to overcome. Coding algorithm, and you don't want to run the muscle straight to fatigue because then it's going to take a long time to recover. And so those are really hard scientific questions to overcome. Uh, so yeah. in the meantime, working on uh, can we train subjects to control robotic arms um, you know, and how do subjects actually change their neural activity during that learning process? What can that teach us about learning in general? These are the kinds of things we're interested in. Uh, and then, you know, all of that technology is obviously useful for somebody who's missing a limb entirely. So, you know, amputation and, and that sort yeah. of thing. So what are you learning about uh, your work so far? Are you, what are you seeing after someone's had an implant for a while? You know, they're getting better, they're getting finer control. Do you then remove part of the implants, or do you change the implant, or do you add more neurons, or what? You know, what kinds of things are you tweaking to uh, that are giving you insight? Yeah. So one of the things that we've been very interested in is how the brain learns. So if you imagine like giving someone a tennis racket and allowing them to practice with a tennis racket, then they're going to get better at playing tennis. So similarly, if you give someone a brain-computer interface and then you allow them to practice with it they're going to get better at using the brain computer. And so one thing that we've been very interested in is uh, observing what changes in the brain uh, when a user goes from being a novice to becoming an expert. Um, and this is uh, work that uh, we've been doing in collaboration with Professor Aaron Batista's lab at the University of Pittsburgh. And uh, a lot of this work was led by uh, Matthew Gala, who was, uh, student, a PhD student, and postdoc in our groups. And the quest, one of the questions that we asked was, uh, what makes learning some tasks easier than others? And so we mm, used okay. a computer interface to try to address this question. And what we found was that the ease to which, with which uh, one can learn to perform an, a task uh, depends on uh, how the brain is wired up, meaning that if the task is uh, quote-unquote compatible with the way in which your brain is wired up, that will make the task easier for you to learn than if the task were quote-unquote incompatible with how your brain is wired up. And so one implication of this is that uh, because each person has um, sort of their own uh, history of experiences, uh, how one person might uh, learn more readily might be different from how another person learns more readily, right? And so um, in, in thinking about, you know, how we teach our kids math or how we teach people new sports or new languages, right? I think, you know, this, this an important implication of this is that when we're teaching people things, we need to maybe give people a more personalized um, sort of uh, training regimen or, or learning environment in which we take into account what they would find easier or harder to learn. Um, 
Right. <clears throat> so what else have you seen? How how does the brain change in response to this learning? Can you tell? Like, what what are you able to see <clears throat> experimentally is happening? Yeah. So there's some really interesting things going on. So so first off, there seem to be very different types of changes uh, when you. you when you first experience something and you, and you just quickly adjust to it uh, versus when you're given a long time to practice with it. And so, um, so you get very different types of, of, of neural reorganization for fast learning versus slow learning. For the fast learning side of things, uh, what looks like uh, happens is that your, your, your brain is producing these neural activity uh, patterns to control your brain-computer interface and then uh, what we do is we change the, the way in which neurons drive the cursor, and that's how we create a learning pressure in this experiment. So we sort of rewire how these neurons are pushing the cursor around it, and, and we say, all right, try and regain control of the cursor. And what we see is that the brain continues to generate the same neural activity patterns that it was generated before, and it just starts to generate them at different times. So it says, you know, this neural activity pattern used to push the cursor to the left, and now it pushes the cursor up. And so what you do is you rapidly figure out to generate that pattern when you want the cursor to move up. And so we call this, you know, sort of recycling of your neural activity patterns. You don't learn to produce new patterns. What you do is you recycle the old patterns and you reassociate them with new movements. Uh, and that happens really fast over the course of, say, an hour or so. And over the course of an hour, you learn to reassociate those existing neural activity patterns with the new movements to regain some control of the cursor. So that's the fast learning mm. side of it. And then over a period of days and weeks of practice, you actually learn to generate fundamentally new neural activity patterns. Uh, and so these would be neural activity patterns you've never shown before, but that are really effective at, at driving the cursor to move faster and more accurately to the target. And so these mm. seem like they're fundamentally different types of learning mechanisms, and we're super interested in, uh, uh, you know, how, how each one of them works, what's actually going on, which are the brain areas that are driving fast learning, and which are the brain areas that are driving slow learning, and try and tease these things apart. Very interesting. So what, what do you think is going to be the, um, the future for the brain-computer interface that you're working on? What, I mean, we don't, I know we don't know when, because the research takes however long it takes. But what do you think is going to happen over the next, you know, three to five years, maybe five to ten years? Where do you think the breakthroughs will be? Yeah, I think so. Right now, this technology is not yet uh, in clinical use, so it's it's a laboratory technology and it's still being developed. I think over the course of the next decade, you're actually going to see clinical translation. You're going to see these devices be used as a therapy for particular types of patients, uh, probably starting with end stage ALS patients and then moving to to less severe cases. Um, and I think that technology right now is getting good enough to certainly give uh, a patient control, really good control over a spelling device, certainly to give a patient uh, good control over a computer cursor so that they can uh, run a computer cursor and, and, and interact with a computer just as if they had their own uh, mouse and their own keyboard and ability to control those. You're going to see these uh, devices used to control wheelchairs and that sort of thing. Uh, on the longer time scale, it's going to take a little bit longer to get control over robotic arms with real grasp control. Whether that's going to happen in the next 10 years or so, I hope it will. I think we're on the right track. I don't know if it will happen in the next decade. And then uh, the other thing that people are really interested in is restoring sensory input 
robot arm touches something, you would like the brain to register that touch. Uh, and so there's a, mm. an active area of research trying to work on that. That's going to be a tough nut to crack, but I, I think they're making good strides on it. Yeah. So in parallel with what uh, Steve just described, uh, right. what we're hoping that will be um, a major area of focus in the coming years is to use a brain to use brain computer interfaces as a tool to study how the brain works. Right? This is mm. uh, a new area that uh, uh, a somewhat small number of people in the field are currently working on, and we're really trying to push the way here in sort of demonstrating uh, that brain computer interfaces um, have a second really important use that people don't really think about or talk about as of yet, but is extremely important. And we think that eventually it will be on par in terms of, or we hope it will be on par um, in terms of its importance um, where the two things are, you know, helping people, which is what Steve just described, and then also better understand how the brain works, which is what we're focused on. Right. So take that as an example, you can take that slow learning process that I was talking about, which takes days to weeks, where you actually generate these fundamentally new neural activity patterns that are really appropriate for the task, allowing you to push the cursor fast and accurately. Uh, why does it take days or weeks to develop those, and can we speed that up? What is there about the training paradigm? How can we, how can we design a training paradigm that will make that process happen uh, happen over a single day or over a few days and not a few weeks. Um, and then can we translate those insights into non-invasive technologies? Can we understand how to better structure training environments so that learning in general is faster? Uh, and maybe not just motor learning, but classroom learning, language learning, those sorts of things. And that's, that's I'd say, the real end goal of the kind of research that we do. Well, very good. I can think of all kinds of... Uh amazing steps forward you know i guess this right now this is like a one-way communication you know you think something and then you affect something in the outside world and i think like you said you know in order for the brain to register that a robotic arm is touching something you need a communication back to the brain to stimulate it in the right way to let it know that you know the robot arm has touched something for instance or it's encountering resistance is that is that right that's right yeah so right now you can see it touch something and so you still got that right visual sensation that's coming, and that's natural, that's still intact. Uh, if you couple that with the tactile sensation and with the proprioceptive sensation, where the limb is in space and how it's oriented, if you couple all those together, I imagine you'd be able to speed that learning process up substantially. Well, yeah, once you're able to stimulate the brain back in the right way and give it feedback, um, I know one thing that came to my mind is what if you connected the uh, you know, someone with a brain-computer interface to another person with a brain-computer interface and see if they can speak, you know, brain-to-brain -brain without speaking. That would be pretty amazing. But you'd have to yeah. have that two-way uh, communication to do that, you know? Yeah, and, and, and people have done this in animals a little bit, sort of give output from one thought, input into another, and you can do that sort of thing. Um, and it's it sounds very sci-fi, very next level. And once, in one sense, it's like true brain-to-brain -brain communication. In the other sense... Essentially, what's going on is you're decoding some kind of intent, often a motor intent, move a robotic arm that way, and the person is sensing that motor intent. They could see it, or in this case, it's actually a stimulation in the brain. Uh, and so in that sense, it's maybe less magical. Right. Gotcha. Well, very good. I mean, the work you guys are doing is super important. It's got a lot of amazing implications, and uh, 
any any last thoughts that you want to impart where you see things going in the very near future or is it just you know we're heads down we've got a lot of work to do and it's going to be a while before we uh you know this goes clinical yeah right back to work <laughs> <laughs> right, well, so what, what's the best way for our listeners to get in touch with you if they have questions or ideas or collaboration ideas uh so uh our our press liaison is actually in the room right now is emily durham uh and the best way to get in touch with us is, is through her uh and her, her right. contact information is is on the Carnegie Mellon website. You can call her or email her, and, and she can uh, make sure that those inquiries get to the right people. Very good. All right, well, Professors Chase and you, thank you so much for coming. I really appreciate your time, and it's uh, it's been very fascinating. Thank you. Thank, thank you. you. You have been listening to Almost Here, Around the Corner Future Technology Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Subscribe to this podcast, post to review, to discover more future technologies that are poised to transform our lives for better or worse, such as Bitcoin, artificial intelligence, 3D printing, blockchain, virtual reality, and more.